John 6, verse 60. Heading is, many disciples desert Jesus. On hearing it, many of his disciples said, this is a hard teaching, who can accept it? Aware that his disciples were grumbling about this, Jesus said to them, does this offend you? Then what if you see the Son of Man ascend to where he was before? The Spirit gives life. The flesh counts for nothing. The words I have spoken to you, they are full of the Spirit and life. Yet there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus had known from the beginning which of them did not believe and who would betray him. He went on to say, This is why I told you, that no one can come to me unless the Father has enabled them. From this time, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. You do not want to leave too, do you? Jesus asked the twelve. Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have come to believe and to know that you are the Holy One of God. Then Jesus replied, Have I not chosen you, the twelve? Yet one of you is a devil. He meant Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, who though was one of the twelve, was later to betray him. morning. Um, Before we get into it, um, I would just like to extend to you the warmest greetings, grace, mercy and peace from the the elders at Gosnells, the deacons, and also all your brothers and sisters. Um, Some of you may know them, some of you may not, uh, but it's always a joy for me to think there's six, seven groups of people in the Reformed Church who get together on a Sunday morning And it's lovely that we share so much in common. So please experience those warm greetings, uh, as well as those from my wife and children, some of them who are here, but my oldest son's, um, he's a bit sick this morning, so Mum's Day is having an awesome Mother's Day looking after sick children, which I think many mums would understand. Um, Before we sort of really dive into the passage, I'd just like to give you some background Um, This is part of a sermon series that um, I'm working through in Gosnells in the Gospel of John. And uh, the Gospel of John is different to the other Gospels. So if you're a student of the New Testament, you might know Matthew, Mark and Luke as the synoptic Gospels. And John is different. Uh, One way that I like to describe it to people, and you can take it or leave it, it's like there's been a car crash. Um, Luke saw it from behind... Matthew saw it from the side and he recorded all the minute details and why it happened and you have Mark who was friends of the guy who saw it and then there's one guy who was in the car when it happened and he wrote it, it's all the same event but he wrote it in a different way and and when you read John you see that it's different and if you go to the end of John in chapter 20 verse 31 he makes it very clear that he wrote his gospel for a very specific purpose. And that purpose is that you would know that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and in him you'll have eternal life. 
So whenever you read a passage from the Gospel of John, you have to understand that that is why John was writing that book and that passage is placed in there for that reason. So in chapter 6, this is the third sermon that sort of we preach through in chapter 6. The first of those sermons focused on how Jesus was the true bread. Um, and the second about how Jesus joined the disciples in the boat. And in both of these miracles, they both lead to series of teaching. And what you see in, the, in John chapter 6 continually is that Jesus doesn't just provide the bread like Moses did in the desert. Jesus actually is the bread. And ultimately, there's a claim to deity that comes out in that passage. And not only does Jesus calm the waves and calm the storm, but he gets into the boat with the disciples. And there's a constant focus as Jesus unpacks these miracles and tries to explain to the crowds the significance of the sign. He's trying to get at something. And our author, John, is trying to get you to see something too. And coming back to that purpose, it's that Jesus is not some miracle guy. He's not some cosmic vending machine or some Roman rescuer. He's actually the son of God who enters into human history. And in him you have eternal life. Now, previously in John, you saw him talk to Nicodemus. And Nicodemus doesn't quite get it. In John chapter 4, you see Jesus talking to the woman at the well. And she sort of gets it, but it takes a bit. And again... The crowds, they saw these signs. They saw Jesus provide the bread. They, and the disciples saw him calm the waters. But did they get the spiritual reality behind the signs? And the question I want you to think about this morning is, do we understand what these signs and the things that Jesus did meant? So we're going to look at this passage uh, in three sort of sections. We're going to look at the harsh words that um, Jesus references. We're going to look at how many turned back and didn't follow him. And we're going to finally look at the question that he asked the disciples, do you want to leave too? So let's pray and let's get stuck into it. Father in heaven, God eternal, thank you for revealing yourself through your son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, send your spirit in power this morning, Lord, so that we may understand what John is showing us in this text. And may come and see and trust and know deep within our heart that Jesus is the source and the sustainer of our life. In the wonderful name of the Lord Jesus. Amen. Now, I'd like you to throw your mind back. Um, if you're in high school, maybe about four months ago. If you're past high school like me, a decade or two or three or four or five, depends on how many grey hairs you may have. But if you can remember, who remembers... Swimming training. The swimming carnival is coming up. First week of school, the board, the little, little notice goes on the board. It's probably done with an app these days, but there used to be a notice on the board that said, come to swimming training early in the morning. And in the second week of school, there'd be 30 or 40 people there. Everyone would be there. You know, everyone was super excited about swimming training. Why? Because you could get fit. All the cool people were there. You'd probably get a six-pack and a tan. You might win the swimming carnival. There's probably a pretty girl or a nice guy there. There was, there was just a whole bunch of reasons to go. And everyone, and it was packed. The first week swimming training was packed. Two weeks later, the numbers had dwindled to fingers and toes. 
And by the time the swimming carnival came around, there was three kids there and two of them were the um, phys ed teacher's kids. The, the harsh reality, if you've ever done swimming training, the harsh reality of swimming training is you have to get up early, you have to get into a cold pool and you have to punish your mind and your body over an extended period of time to see really slow improvement for potentially 10 minutes of glory. It really isn't all six-pack tan bodies and hanging out with the cool kids and being a champion swimmer. But in that first week, man, you, you were, the crowd was there. The sentiment was there. The harsh reality, however, turned many away. Now, in our text today, Jesus' disciples are grumbling about the difficulty or the harshness of Jesus' teaching. This is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? And I want to make two clarifications just so we understand what's being said and what's not being said. The first thing to clarify is who is a disciple in this context? And at this point in the Gospel of John, a disciple is anyone who happens to be following Jesus at that point in time. Uh, some people were following him for free bread. <laughs> some people were following him uh, because of the healings that he'd been doing. Some people were following him because they thought he might rise up and crush the Romans. And some people were following him because someone else was. Um, they, they hadn't got to the point where they'd come to see him as God in the flesh, put their faith in him as their only saviour. They were just there. Um, the second thing is the word hard saying. Now, this is not hard in the sense of difficult to comprehend or difficult to understand. It's hard in the sense that it's harsh. Uh, it's a teaching that is hard to swallow or it's bitter to the taste. And the saying that Jesus is referring to when he says it's a hard saying is the, basically the discourse or the conversation that he'd had in the synagogue with the crowds after the feeding of the 5,000. And I'd like to highlight four features of what Jesus had been saying in the synagogue that people found hard. The first thing was a pretty simple one. People had rocked up, 5,000 men, probably tens of, you know, probably 10,000 people in general, had rocked up in a field to hear this guy talk and to get free bread. <laughs> they got the free bread, they'd seen the healings. And do you remember in verse, I'm not sure if you've read it, but six, you know, verse 14 in chapter 6, they were ready to make him king. And then fast forward a day later, Jesus is talking about how he's the bread and they should eat him. And they're like, what? We, we came here for free food and his super healings and beating up Romans, not, not some weird thing about you being important. Like, they, they, just, they had expectations that weren't being fulfilled. The second thing is when Jesus spoke, he didn't go, Rabbi Jeconiah, the son of Hezekiah, said this. He just said, I'm going to tell you the truth. And in that culture, in our culture, everyone who has an Instagram platform thinks they can do that. But in that culture, you could not claim to be a source of truth. You had to rely on historical or cultural precedent. So you always had to talk about someone else who said something. Jesus, when he spoke, did not have little footnotes when he spoke. He just said, this is the truth. And they're like, how can this guy do this? He's the son of that carpenter who lives at that backwater, you know, Nazareth, like past Maddington, that, that sort of place. And then the third thing is Jesus actually claims to be greater than Moses. He just didn't provide bread like Moses who mediated with God. He actually says, I am the bread. 
And it doesn't take much to realise that he's ultimately claiming to be God at this point. And, and people in the crowd started to realise what he was getting at. And then the last thing, and the thing I think which really tips people over the edge, is that if you look at verses sort of 50 to 60, he talks about how people have to eat his flesh and drink his blood. If you can just put your mind in Jewish culture, first century AD, the abhorrence of eating blood, the importance of eating clean animals, the sacrificial system. If you were to be a teacher at that time and you said, you should eat my flesh and drink my blood, this is not something that would be perceived or received well. And a lot of people really found this, these, all these things, they're like, what is this guy on about? What a wacko. Like some people would have been annoyed, some people wouldn't have understood, some people would have been just like throw your hands up and walk out kind of thing. And they start to grumble. And they're annoyed about these things. Now we might sit here with the benefit of hindsight and we can probably explain or understand what is going on here because we have the benefit of all the revelation that came after. But I want to ask you a question, an honest question. We may have more in common with these disciples than you would like to think or that you or I would like to think. There are actually many aspects of God's law, of Jesus' teaching and the apostles' teaching that are difficult to swallow. They grate against our inherent bent towards self-sovereignty and our continuing desire, our natural inclination to find treasure and comfort on this earth rather than in heaven. I ask you to consider the following teachings and tell me if your heart is leaping for joy, willing to obey them. Uh, Luke 9.62 No one who puts his hand to the plough and looks back is fit for service in the kingdom of God. Who here relishes a late night church council meeting? Or when you're on crèche for the 15th week in a row with the same kids who are crying and snotting all over you, who's rejoicing? Who's looking back on the plough at that point? Listen to this one. For all you people who work in offices with passive aggressive staff members. Matthew chapter 5 verse 44. But I tell you, love your enemies. Love your enemies. And pray for those who persecute you. When that passive aggressive person has sent the fourth email that day, are you trying to devise a way to get back at them? Or are you praying you're praying for that person. This is, that's a harsh teaching. <laughs> it, it grates against our desire to be right. Listen to this one. And this, this is written, I'm not sure if you guys are aware, if you have a fridge, if you've got a car, maybe three, house, two, everyone ate this morning, you're a one percenter. I don't mean a one percenter in like a Acacia Prison kind of thing. I mean, a, I mean a one percenter in terms of you are in the highest levels of GDP and you have the, one of some of the most freedom that you can imagine. So unfortunately, whether you like it or not, this command is to us. Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Who freaks out when their superannuation balance goes down by 30% because Elon Musk said something? You know, we, we are all in danger of this. No, no, one, no one here is immune from this. No, no generation, no age group. We, we have to realise we are the rich, <laughs> globally speaking. 
And this one, this is like, this is where, this is like a difficult thing to think through. Romans 9, 11, 13. Yet before the twins were born or had done anything good or bad, in order that God's purpose in election might stand, not by works, but by him who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger, just as I have written, Jacob I loved and Esau I hated. That's not in the Bible, is it? God can't say that. He does. This, this teaching about God's divine calling and God's election is in the Scriptures. And there's so many teachings like these which are hard to swallow. They grate us. So before you get on your high horse, and I'm myself included, oh, those stupid people in the synagogue, how far away are we from that? How far away are we from maybe giving lip service to Jesus, but actually not really following the hard teachings? So, at this point, many turned back. And in his divine knowledge, Jesus knew that these people were grumbling against his teachings and they were struggling to accept these hard teachings. And you think <laughs> if Jesus was reading the room, he would instead of relenting, he, he might actually relent and change tack a bit and bring some people back towards him. However, Jesus' response is to basically push the offence even further. He doubles down. It's almost, he says to the crowd, if you think what I've said is just offensive, wait till you hear this. What about I, as the son of man, God's messianic figure, think of Daniel 7, was to ascend to heaven where I came from? And there's a lot going on here because this phrase references the promises back in Daniel. And he basically says that he is this messianic figure and when this happens, when he ascends to heaven, so when all the things that he says happens after the ascension, so he's basically saying here, I'm going to do something. And we later know that that's his death, burial, resurrection, ascension. I'm going to do th something that if you find what I've said offensive, when you see that, you're going to be really, really offended. But when you look at the Greek, or when you look at the original language, you can take that phrase in two ways. And what I mean is this. That, that process, that death, burial, resurrection, ascension, will either increase the offence or that will help you understand what is going on and will remove the offence. And if you think about when Jesus talked about his flesh, eating his flesh and, and drinking his blood, and you remember that this particular discourse is happening around the Passover, you start to realise that if you had spiritual eyes when you heard this, you would start to realise that Jesus is talking about him being the fulfilment of the sacrificial lamb at Passover. And when we look at his death and resurrection, we start to see what he means by the things he's saying. But at the same time, if you didn't see that, you would just think like the Gentiles did and like the Greeks did and like the Jews did at the time, that a guy dying on the cross is the stupidest thing ever. To Greeks, it's foolishness, and to the Jews, it was offensive. So what's the difference? And the difference is that it's the Spirit of God who helps the people to understand that changes the view 
or changes the understanding of what's been said and what's been done. Think of verse 64 and 65. But there are some of you who do not believe, for Jesus had known from the beginning who those were who would not believe and who it was who would betray him. And he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted by the Father. All along, in this whole passage, Jesus keeps using the miraculous provision of bread as a sign, as a metaphor, that he is the source and sustenance of life. Jesus has been speaking words that are spiritual and that bring spiritual life. And as we said, for some this is offensive and, offensive and harsh, but to others it was like water in the desert. And I, I want to put to you the, the difference in the response the difference in the two groups of people who hear the same thing, but for one it's offensive and for one it's beautiful, the difference is the work of the Holy Spirit bringing life so that you can understand these words. And this theme, that the work of the Spirit, think of the conversation with Nicodemus, it, it just reverberates through the Gospel of John and in fact all the scriptures. Dead men don't choose to live and babies don't choose to get born. It's actually God who brings about life. It's God who calls. It's God who regenerates. And it's God who makes it possible to understand and to come to Him. As we've said before, at this point, many disciples turned back. They didn't combine the message they heard with faith. And from the context, it seemed that most of the followers, maybe all except the 12, left him. So at this point, Jesus asks the question. He turns to the 12 who are left and he says, do you want to go away as well? Now it's tempting to interpret this as a, a low point in Jesus' ministry. A moment in his humanity where he's flat, he's broken, and he's seeking the comfort of the twelve. <laughs> However, the more you read this, the more we realize that this is a question that Jesus is asking the disciples for their benefit, not his. Jesus, as the king of the universe, does not require the affirmation of twelve fishermen. It's really important. This is not a tentative request for affirmation, but it's a challenge. It's not like, are you, are you going to leave as well? It's actually a challenge. Are you going to leave as well? And it's a challenge for their benefit. The disciples need to articulate a response more than Jesus needs to hear it. And Peter's response, O Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We believe and know that you are the Holy One of God. And I'd put to you that right at that point, the disciples didn't fully understand all that was going on. They didn't understand fully who Jesus was. But by the work of the Spirit in their lives, they had begun to come to see and understand Jesus is who he said he was. As we dwell on Peter's confession, I'd like to put to us the same question. 
when we think of the harsh teachings of the scriptures, the things that are hard for us to listen to, the things that are hard for us to do, the exclusive claim that Jesus places on our life, when we dwell on these thoughts, do you want to go away as well? Jesus clearly and consistently claims to be God's son, the promised Messiah, the revelation of God, the I am in the flesh. And his claim was that through him and only him could the disciples and could you have life. At one level, this is such a, such a beautiful teaching. At another level, it's such a hard teaching especially in our pluralistic, self-determining culture today. Has anyone here been to our church uh, in Gosnells? Not sure if you've been there. Um, there's a stonking great big mosque next door. Like, I mean a whopper. Um, it's really big. My daughter still thinks the crescent of the moon means church when we go around the hill because she sees the crescent. <laughs> so I'm trying to teach her that one. Um, but I have friends who go to that mosque who live in my street, Afghanis. Uh, I spend a lot of time with people who are like, like practicing atheists or you know pragmatic, pragmatic atheists, um, I have to talk with them. I have to be friends with those people, knowing that I love and serve a king who doesn't like King Charles say that all faiths have some way of getting to the top. It's actually an exclusive claim. How, how can I say that amongst my Muslim friends and my atheist friends and my Buddhist friends and my Hindu friends and, and all the people that you interact with in your work life and in your wider circles, how, how can Jesus say that? How can he exclusively claim, you know, I am the way, not I'm one of the ways, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. This is offensive. This is a harsh teaching. And then, <laughs> to come back to where we sort of have been hanging around, not only is he the only way, the, the reality is you can't even choose it. And I'll, I'll come back to that because that needs some nuancing, but dead men can't choose. The, unless the Father draws them, they will not come. So not only is, is Jesus' claim super offensive, he's the only way, he also says that he needs to change your heart before you can even see that way. And I would like to put to you, brothers and sisters, this is a hard teaching in a post-Christendom world. Now, as we sit there and we dwell on that, I think the key in coming to a place of understanding is to reorientate or to change the posture of our hearts to consider the ridiculous level of authority and power of our creator. I, I like science and engineering. It's, it's of interest to me. I'm not sure if people here are like that. But I'm not sure if you even do a bit of you know, popular culture reading how long we've been working on nuclear fusion for and we're getting closer, there's some positive moves. Our God spoke and invented nuclear fusion. And he contained it. And he put it in a place so that we enjoy its warmth without being vaporised. 
He spoke and your heart follows a rhythm and your lungs go up and down and your cells follow a pattern established in the DNA. And you, you, you love someone and you have a baby. It's incredible. We make a new human. I'm not sure if you've used ChatGPT and everyone's super excited about artificial intelligence. It's sort of like we forgot all the wonderful things that God's done and we're super excited about our little toy we've got in the background. This God is so powerful. When we start to ask hard questions, it's really important we remember our position in the room. I'll put it this way. When we think about life, we have a natural tendency to put ourselves on the stage and all of life, our family, our friends, our job, our career, and sorry millennials, this is a real problem for you, you've, you've grown up in this. It's all about, they're all supporting your fulfillment. That is a horrid lie. It's a dangerous lie. The truth of the matter is, you are not qualified to be on center stage. It's a very boring show and very uninteresting. Jesus Christ is at the center of human history and if you're lucky, you're in the 48,000th row behind a pillar. That's where you fit and you should praise God that that's where you fit. The dangerous, the most dangerous lie you can absorb in your life is to think that your life is about you. Now, go with me here because I'm trying to, I'm trying to dig through hundreds of years of indoctrination that you receive. Just, just remember, you get discipled for 144 hours a week and maybe an hour and a half of that is through church. You watch TV, you read books, you hang out with people, you're constantly being discipled whether you know it or not. And Satan is really happy if you think that you're important. Really happy. And I'm not trying to degenerate you and make you think you're like, woe is me. I'm trying to set you free. Do you see how this truth sets you free? No longer do you have to justify your existence like someone driving a Hilux with lifted 33-inch tires. You, that's not justifying your existence. I'm not sure if you've realized that. It really isn't. You don't need to justify your existence. You get to exist, and that's the point. So I want you to sort of flick, flick your mind and flick your heart. When you're asking these hard questions, you've got to change the posture of your heart. Now, sometimes we get ourselves in a theological knot uh, with this doctrine of election and with the fact that God makes exclusive claims through Jesus and that he has to work in our hearts for us to respond. In fact, when I was younger, there's actually a member of this church, a young teenager at the time, and he told me he can't be a Christian because he's not one of the elect. Now, that's a misunderstanding of a doctrine, and I, I'd want you to, to avoid that error, that category error. And, and I'll tell you why, because um, the doctrine of election, the, the, the role of God's calling us to follow him, they're a little bit hard to understand. But do you know, something that's hard to understand doesn't mean it's not true. It usually just means you're not smart enough. <laughs> and and I, I mean this in terms of like, none of us are smart enough. Um, you, just, you just simply haven't got the categories in your brain to answer the question. And, and again, that should not lead you to stoic fatalism. It should lead you to a place of worship. Can, can you humor me a little bit? Do you see that door right there? It's quite easy to look at that door from one side. Now, if I asked you to look at two sides of that door at the same time, it's actually really, really difficult. 
if you hold the door like that and you look at you can sort of see both sides, but I can only ever see this side. I walk to the door, open the door, shut the door, and I can look at the other side. And that's a really simple example of how something as simple as a door can demonstrate the fact that it's hard to see both sides of it at the same time. So the scriptures, they reveal that it is God who calls, the Father draws, it is God who regenerates. The wind blows, but you can't see where it blows. And it says, respond in faith, believe, you have to do it, turn to God, turn to God. How can those two be true? Uh, it, just means you, <laughs> it just means your brain's too small. <laughs> and and I, I mean that in the nicest possible way because mine's too small as well. And think about that. When you walk towards the door, when you, when you become a Christian, it's as if, Lord Jesus, I accept you. I believe you. I respond in faith. You walk through the door, you turn around, and you look at the door, and then it says, I drew you. I knew you. I called you. I made you alive. I changed the way your eyes work and your hearts work so that you could actually look at me, see me as beautiful and respond in faith. Now, the fact that we can't understand those two things at the same time just means that we're not God. And that's a, that's a glorious reality for me. And if you're a bit more um, uh, technically minded, I'll give you another example that has helped me. Um, if you think about the nature of light, light is like a light wave. It's a, we've got waves of electromagnetic radiation, but it also behaves like a particle. And it, according to certain physical theories, you, you can't have light waves and you can't have particles at the same time. It's not possible. But it turns out it is. And what does that mean? <laughs> it means your theory is not good enough. Do, do you see what I'm saying? There's numerous examples in our life where we have paradoxes that we accept because they're true. And the fact that we don't understand them, it just simply means we're not good enough. And this is the key, and this is, I guess, one of the key applications from this sermon. This should not lead you to think that God is unfair for loving Jacob and hating Esau. This should lead you to a place of worship. Remember, you're not on center stage. Your children aren't on the stage center. This is hard for us to get our heads around. We were created to be in relationship with God. We get to be in relationship with God. And that is the posture of our heart when we hear these teachings. So as we sort of come to a close, I want to leave you with a picture in your minds. When you go into a dark room, the room is very dark. You turn the light on and it's like the light eats up the darkness. It just gobbles it up. It destroys the darkness. In, at the speed of light, the moment you hit that thing, darkness is destroyed. Did the darkness destroy, did the, did the light destroy the darkness because it hates it? No. Just by simple definition of being light, it was able to destroy the darkness. Now when you think about God Almighty, by definition, He is pure light, pure goodness, amazing love, right? When he encounters darkness and sin, by definition of his character, he destroys it. He has to. If God does not destroy darkness and evil and sin and horrible things, he is not God. 
But do you know what? God can think in more than one direction at one time. Unlike us, we struggle with that, despite what women say. We as a human race really struggle to do more than one or two things at once, like big things. God doesn't have that little problem. So he can be perfectly just. He can be, he can be destroying evil and darkness. And he can have a heart of love to you that you can't even grasp. On that subject, I'd really encourage you, if you're looking for a book to read, there's a book called Gentle and Lowly, which talks about God's heart for us and it, it plums some of the depths of the Puritan writing. And it is it's, it's magnificent. It's just beautiful. So God can be, by definition, someone who destroys darkness and sin and at the same time can have such extravagant love for his people. And we know this is true because in the cross... The Lord Jesus demonstrates God's love for us by saving us and at the same time destroying the power of sin. So do you know what? When you, when you put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, when you, when you trust that God has made a way and he's taken away the darkness in your life, instead of God being like a campfire, which you know when you go to a campfire and people get a bit excited, a bit of petrol goes on, a bit of diesel, a bit of ammonium nitrate, a bit of coal, you know, just keeps going on and it's... You know, before you know it, it's like 28 metres in diameter and it's like a 1,000 degrees standing near it. And if you try and look into that campfire, it burns your eyeballs. Don't do it. Just an encouragement. But our God is a consuming fire. But however hot you, you can make your campfire, he's so much more. He consumes darkness. But when you are united to the Lord Jesus Christ in faith, when you are joined to him, at that time, no longer does the light consume you and burn you up. Instead, when you stand in God's presence, the light from his presence warms you. It opens your eyes. And no longer does the the, the light and the power of God's character destroy you because of the darkness inside of you. Instead, because you're united to his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, it's like going out in the sun on a beautiful autumn's day. And instead of that nuclear fusion reaction so many thousand miles away destroying you, it actually provides you with a wondrous warmth and life. And that is the joy for us. When we are united to Christ, when we put our trust in him, you can experience the joy, the wonder of being in God's presence and experiencing his love towards you. A love that you... <laughs> uh, John Piper said this line, and I think it's really helpful. Your eyes aren't good enough to deal with the colours that are in the new heavens and new earth. You need new eyes. <laughs> You, you and me will spend the rest of our lives just trying to grasp how wondrous God's love is towards us. So when you think about the harsh teachings of the Lord Jesus, when you read something in the Bible that is difficult to swallow, when you think about all the things you're going to have to give up to be obedient to God's command in your life, because if you haven't done that yet, it, it'll come. It'll come. Can I ask you to, to take a moment to reorientate your heart? 
to ask the Spirit of God to come upon you to give you new eyes and a new heart so that you can see who God is and who you are and you can see the ridiculousness of the truth that you get to be in relationship with him and and you get to be in the presence of this God who loves you and and then once you once you're there once you're in that place of worship then deal with the hard question and i would ask you that as you live in that place of worship that this love that fills your heart, when, you, when, you, when you're standing in the sun of God's love and it's warming your skin and it's warming you all the way down to your soul and like a plant growing, you know, you see the plants almost bend towards the sun, I would encourage you, brothers and sisters, go out, go out into this world and let people who meet you praise God for the good deeds they see in your life. Let them praise your Father in heaven for the good deeds that you do. And... Can I, can I ask something of God for us here today? And I pray that it's true. When Peter said it, and I, and I want this to be true of me, and I want it to be true of you, that when Peter said it, Lord, to whom shall we go? Who else offers us such a wonderful salvation? And I want to pray now because that is my desire for myself personally, and it's my desire for you, that we genuinely go we look at what God has put forward to us and go, where else can we go? So let's pray. Father, in this passage, uh, in the whole of John, where you, you reveal your heart for people, Lord. You, you reveal your character of righteousness and you reveal your love to your people, Lord. This love that we can hardly get our fingers on. Lord, I pray that it leads us to a place of worship, to a place of, of joyful wonder at your goodness. And Lord, I pray that the way that Peter was affected by the work of the Spirit and by what he saw, it led him to say, where shall we go, Lord? I pray, Lord, that that becomes the reality for us. When we start to grasp all that you have done for us, even though we are struggling with the things we don't understand and the things that are great against us, Lord, we can say, where shall we go, Lord? Lord, please help us constantly to turn to you. In your wonderful name, Jesus. Amen.